Hello, and many thanks for joining me for this mini episode of Love Your Library, the Hampshire Libraries podcast. Brought to you with support from BorrowBox, the library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. I'm Mary Stone, and in this episode, I have an interview for you with local author Claire Gradich about her debut novel, The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox. So let me tell you a bit about Claire. She was born and brought up in Romsey, where her book is also set, and she studied creative writing at the University of Winchester. In fact, she wrote The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox as part of her creative writing PhD, which then went on to win the Richard and Judy Search for a Bestseller competition. You'll hear more about that in just a moment. According to Waterstones, her book is the perfect read for fans of Sunday night drama, Agatha Christie meets the Mitford Murders. It's set during the Second World War and follows Josephine Fox as she returns to her hometown to find answers to some questions about her family. Joe arrives the day after the town is hit by a bomb and the local pub is destroyed. But soon, Joe is on the hunt for a murderer when eight, not seven, bodies are found in the wreckage. Who is the mysterious dead girl and how did she die exactly? With help from local coroner and old friend Bram Nash, Joe sets out to establish the identity of the girl and solve the riddle of her death, and in doing so, uncovers some of her own personal mystery along the way. Intriguing stuff. My colleague and co-host of our main Love Your Library podcast, Kate Price-McCarthy, met up with Claire to talk about her novel. The interview begins with Claire giving a short reading from it. Fourteenth, fifteenth of April, nineteen forty-one. The skies over southern England. Bomber's moon. From twenty thousand feet, the Solent shines like a mermaid's tail, showing the way to the city so plainly the blackout is useless. There's no mistaking the boatyards, the aircraft factories, the docks. The first Junkers follow the water, set down their payload as simple as laying eggs. Targets lose their definition as the fires spread. The city answers back. Akak guns pouring defiance into the sky. Caught in a stream of tracer, one bomber jinks wildly, turns for home. Engine stuttering smoke, it jettisons its load ten miles off target, sees a dark spot light up like Christmas. Unknowing, the aircraft has seven deaths on its tally sheet when a bowfighter brings it down barely a minute later. But tomorrow, when the heavy rescue crew digs the last casualty, out of what's left of the little Hampshire pub on the outskirts of Romsey, there will be an extra body to carry to the makeshift mortuary. Not seven shrouded corpses, but eight. Eight unlawful deaths for the town's coroner to investigate. Now, your book, The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox, centres really on two mysteries, which keeps the reader on the edge of their seat. Could you uh, tell us a bit about these threads in your story? 
Okay, well, the, the first thread really is uh, my protagonist, Jo Fox, or Jo Lester as she is by the time she comes back to Romsey, is uh, come back in search of her father. Um, all her life she's believed her father was dead and that she was born illegitimate and that her father was dead. But uh, she discovers when her mother dies that uh, he's alive and she comes back to Romsey to try and find him. Uh, when she gets back to Romsey, she gets involved in a murder murder mystery. There has been a bombing in the in the town and uh, a body extra to those who were known to be in the building when the building was bombed. Um, she's not a not known to anyone or doesn't appear to be known to anyone. And uh, she has been killed rather than caught in the bombing. So that's how it starts. It's the way that uh, initially people are quite keen to just sweep her death under the carpet. Oh, she must have been involved in the bombing. They don't really take her seriously because she's not considered, her life isn't considered to be worthwhile in the same way. Yes, that's right. That's a, an important element of it that I wanted to parallel, in a sense, uh, the um, experience of the protagonist and her mother when she was a child and when her mother came pregnant when she wasn't married. And uh, with this girl who had apparently um, lived a fairly irregular life and who wasn't known who who wasn't anyone who was somebody that people knew about so it was it was important to, to as part of the theme that that would be the case absolutely and and reading this book it felt so unfair that in these times the first half of the 20th century that that women and children should be somehow kind of blamed and shunned for their misfortune but then i only needed to think of those poor teenage victims in rochdale to realize we're still doing the same thing today. Is that something that you felt you wanted to address? Yeah, it is really. One of the things that was important to me was to make the, the victim important in the story, that her life mattered and that it was her identity which counted. I'm getting on in years now. So uh, I remember um, that time, um, not, not as far back as that, but certainly when I was a young girl to have an illegitimate child was extremely uh, frowned upon and uh, yes it was the child in a sense that was blamed for being illegitimate even though it was nothing to do with them the description of a power struggle or a you know a social class struggle between the people that that could do pretty much what they wanted to do because they were part of the society and the people who couldn't who were considered to be lower class was something I did want to address something which I think was still quite prevalent when I was a, a young woman well yeah that I felt there was a lot about these these old systems of power and status uh, in these times particularly among the men and again this you kind of think oh how dreadful it was all like that but it does it does have an echo with today's sort of me too campaigns uh, and again is this something that you were conscious of when you were writing about it this this still the the difference that men in power have that where women have to just keep quiet. It was written as part of my PhD. So um, I was dealing with themes and I was trying to reflect all sorts of things. I was trying to make a contemporary theme, um, but also to be reflecting the times, the 1940s, as they were. I did a lot of research about uh, uh, you know how things really were, as opposed to how they 
presented to be um, lots of reading of mass observation diaries and things like that, which reflect the actual views of people rather than what we hope it would be. I mean, very contemporary at the moment when we're talking about wartime spirit, we've all got to pull together and we jolly well know that not everybody pulled together and not everybody thinks the same way about a situation. I know, absolutely. There are some some harsh differences in depending where you are in the social hierarchy. Mm. I was interested, your two main characters, Josephine or Joe and Bram, uh, they're not your usual type of lead characters uh, and I like them all the more for it. Did you? Why did you choose to write them this way? It was important to me in a sense to reflect that kind of feeling of an outsider, especially for Joe, that she felt as if she was not part of the society, that she had been away from Romsey for a very long time. I was brought up in Romsey, as I say, and uh, we lived on a little small holding. And when I was 15, the, the small holding was sold. And, you know, I don't have any traumatic events in my childhood. I'm not trying to say that. But we moved out of Romsey and we moved not so far away. I live in Charnas Ford now. But that kind of sense of nostalgia about going back to somewhere where you were a child was part of what I was writing. And that sense of when you go back to somewhere like that, you do feel like a, an outsider, even though you know everything really well, you, you're not part of it because you haven't been part of it for a long time. So that was important. And yeah, they they kind of, the characters came really before the, the story. And uh, Bram, I was keen to reflect that somebody might be a bit different. I wanted someone a bit different. So they weren't all mean, miserable um, characters in the society of Romsey. So he was my slightly different person. Um, And I wanted to reflect his previous experiences in the First War and make him just a little bit different. It was great to to read a book that was so deeply rooted in the history of a Hampshire town. And I have to say, you weren't always totally positive about Romsey's small time attitudes during the war. But your uh, love and interest in the place does shine through. What, What made you decide to set your book here? Well, as I say, I was born and brought up in Romsey, um, lived there the first 15 years of my life. I know it, you know, even though I've lived an awful lot more years elsewhere, I know it. it's in kind of in my bones, I suppose you would say, you know, place you're brought up in. And because I wanted to set it back in time, or even though my childhood isn't that far back in time, post-war Romsey wasn't so very different, I don't believe, than pre-war Romsey. My mother-in-law knew Romsey in the uh, 30s. And when I was talking about things I was writing about, she said, oh, yes, that's how it was. So I was able to do that. You know, people have said to me before about it's not entirely um, a positive view of Romsey. And as I tried to say earlier on, it isn't so much that I think Romsey was exceptionally unpleasant. Um, I think it was just the way things were. I think it was society as a whole. And a town like Romsey reflected it. And because it was smaller, you know, there was less variation in a sense. And it was much more a melting pot of emotion and things that were happening. And certainly during the Second World War, when people's um, movements were restricted a bit, not as much as they are now, but certainly that you, you couldn't just wander off. You, you didn't have the you know, travel, the ease of travel or the change of people coming in and out of a society. I think it was very much more pressure, you know, kind of pressurised situation. 
my father was alive in Romsey in the war um, and he said nothing much happened it was just the way it always was and I kind of wanted that feeling that outside things were happening in Romsey itself they wanted things to stay the same and they wanted to keep things the same and to perhaps even ignore the unpleasantnesses that were going on as part of the war. Yeah, I can see that, yes. Uh, I was interested, I'm not sure I've come across a mystery novel that focuses on a coroner before, and I'm a huge fan of detective stories. It just happens, maybe maybe it's regularly done, I just haven't come across it. But it seems such a good idea as there's someone who's sort of involved with the case, but without quite the same power as, a, as the police. So what gave you the idea of, of focusing on a coroner? Well, it was really partly that I was trying to work out how I could have access, I mean, to uh, sort of the legal procedures and perhaps to an, a certain degree of authority about the legal procedures without being a police procedural. I didn't think I could handle a police procedural set in the in the 1940s. Um, I didn't feel that that was going to be what I wanted. And, you know, it if you're going to have an amateur detective, in a sense, in the way that Joe is an amateur detective, you have to have some kind of access to the legal procedures, the, the way things happen. And so Bram was my way into that. A long time ago, there was a series on the radio about a coroner's assistant, and it was about modern coroner's assistants. And it just kind of um, struck a chord with me. And I, I kind of thought, well, that would be what I could do. I could make my character a coroner's assistant. And that's really where I started from. Well, yeah, it, it works absolutely. It was perfect. And I, I'm assuming you must have had to have done quite a lot of planning like this for such a complex book to be able to pull it off. Would you tell us a bit, little bit about how you, how you went about planning it? As you say, it was, it was your, your PhD Originally, the story came from that. So, and I'm kind of guessing you are a planner rather than a seat of your pants writer. Would that be the right? It isn't actually quite right. Oh, um, I'm a, <laughs> I'm generally a seat of the pants writer. And uh, what happened with this one is that I wrote uh, about twenty thousand words of it. Sort of just wrote it on going forward without really having the characters in my head, but not having the situation um, necessarily in my head. I kind of knew who had done it, but from about 20,000 words to the final piece was was a kind of a bit of a, a struggle. And uh, it was then, I'd, I'd written that pretty much before I started on my PhD. And then it was the PhD task was to plan out that middle bit. So yes, the next 60,000 words from, from 20,000 words onwards. So that was at the point at which I started to plan it and to work it out. I guess that is a, a lot of the job of a writer is to problem solve, solve your own problems that you've created. It is. And, and uh, you know, I quite like I think it's Stephen King who says, uh, you know, plotting, if you plot it out too much, it, it becomes, you know, it can become stale. I find if I plot it out too much, I, I get so I don't really have the same enthusiasm to find out what's going to happen next. Like my reader, I like to, to be working out what's going to happen next. Yeah, I can understand that completely. And uh, I believe this novel won the Richard and Judy search for a bestseller. So tell me, how did that come about? Well, when I'd finished my PhD, um, you're, you're not allowed to publish anything that you, you are doing as a PhD until 
after you've been granted your PhD. So I wrote the novel and it was finished about three years before I actually finished the PhD because I also had to write a critical commentary about how the book, you know, how it worked and how I derived it from theory and all the rest of it, you know, so to make it the, to give it a proper PhD look as it were. And, uh, January 2018, I learned that um, I had got my PhD and I'd been confirmed as a, I'd got my doctorate. And then I had this book that I had had for sitting on the shelf really for three years and wondering what to do with it. So I set to um, write myself a list of agents that might be taking um, crime fiction, historical crime fiction. As I was doing that, I was searching online and I just, I came across the information about the Richard and Judy Prize. And it was, uh, if you were a debut novelist, if you'd never had anything published as a novelist, you could send off 10,000 words of your novel, the first 10,000 words of your novel and a synopsis of, of your novel for nothing. It was a free entry competition. So um, I entered it. I, actually, it was about May time when I did that. And the uh, Closing date was, I think, towards the end of May. And I sent it off because I thought nothing to lose by doing it. And I carried on making my list of who I might send it to. So um, beginning, I think it was the end of June, beginning of July, I got an email to say that I had been shortlisted for the competition. And at that point, um, they sent some editorial comments about what they thought the book should look like when it was done and anything that might be done because you didn't have to have finished a novel. One of the other shortlisters had only written the 10,000 words. I was in a fortunate position because I'd written the whole thing. I revised it thinking about some of the things they'd said. And as I say, all of us, there were five of us, I think, and we all got um, comments about what to do. And then we had to get it back to them by the end of December 2018 which I did. And then in January, end of January 2019, um, I got an email to say I'd won, which I have to say, you could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> it was totally unexpected. I really hadn't expected to win. Um, How exciting. It was just, you know, this would be a good thing to put on my CV and perhaps I would get published as a result. That wasn't the case. I won and it got very exciting after that. <laughs> and you no longer had to look for a publisher, presumably, no, as you had one already. The the um, publisher, the agent, it all came as part of the prize. So yeah, um, Zafre were, the, the prize was run by Judith Richard and Judy Smith's um, Bonnier Zafre, who are my publisher, and Rowan Lawton is my agent. And the agent and publisher all came as part of the prize. So that was lovely. And finally, I wanted to ask, for anyone reading this book, they're going to want to know what's next for Joan Brown. So are you planning a next instalment? I'm planning and have begun writing the next instalment, yes. Um, I haven't got as far as I would have liked to have got with it, but it's certainly on the books and it's uh, certainly going to happen. So yes, there is a next instalment. That was Kate talking to local writer Claire Gradage about her debut novel, The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox, the winner of the Richard and Judy Search for a Bestseller competition. Thanks for listening to Love Your Library, the Hampshire Libraries podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear more interviews like this, plus 
book recommendations from our expert library staff in our longer episodes. Get in touch and let us know what you think of the books and authors we've talked about. And it would be great, of course, if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this really helps other people to find us. I'm Mary Stone, and you've been listening to the Love Your Libraries mini podcast.